Hello and welcome once again to Rasslin Memories on Pioneer 90.1 FM. We are available beyond the FM dial just out of the uh, listening radius at RadioNorthland.org where we broadcast live worldwide to the masses. And if you happen to miss this episode, or if you were just a few minutes late to it, uh, you can always go to the website. we got a Rasslin Memories page within. You can check all that great stuff out uh, that we have on our Radio Northland SoundCloud page. I'm Glenn Broggett along with my co-host down there in the deep in the heart of Texas, Mr. Mike McCurdy. Mike, uh, boy, we've had a, a very, a, we're on a roll here uh, the last couple of weeks uh, with Rasslin' Memories. We've had some very solid guests last week, Princess Victoria, the week before, John Alexander, uh, John, a.k.a. John Arezzi, and this week, uh, we have a, a very, I, I, I found this guy, or this guy found me, we have a very cool guest uh, and with a lot of great stories, and uh, first of all, welcome to the program, and I'm, I'm glad we're here once again doing some Rasslin' Memories. Oh yeah, man. I'm, I'm starting off year number four with a bang, you know, my fourth year with the show and all that. We've had some great guests and we got some great upcoming guests as well too. So, you know, we've got Dan Murphy coming up and mm-hmm. a few others, a lot of books coming out. So people want to come on and, you know, promote their, promote their writing and what's coming out. So yeah, I've it's, never it's kind of a fun start to the new year. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I've never read so many books. You know, I think I, it's been a while since I've read uh, j- this many books in succession just because there's so many new ones and we have so many uh, you know opportunities to interview the authors and have them talk about these uh, releases. And boy, and we've had some just a good roll of, of really solid books. And that leads us to our guest today with another solid book that I, I read here uh, not too long ago. I consumed it in a uh, weekend afternoon, just sitting around and kind of got wrapped up into the stories of this guy's uh, career and involvement in pro wrestling. And, uh, Mike, I know you probably had more of the same type of experience, too, when you picked up the book. It was kind of hard to put down and easy, you know, just easy to absorb because it was just such a nice, a lot of good flow on these stories about this guy's life and who he's worked with. Oh, it was a great read, man. I really enjoyed it. You know, there's a lot of great stories that, uh, you know, I noticed in there that I want to talk to him about and kind of get a little bit more into detail with him because just some of his experiences, man, just reading them, I, I want to hear more about them, and they, they were great. Yeah, yeah, I'm always curious about uh, different parts of the country as far as pro wrestling goes, whether it be in the territories or the uh, post-golden uh, era of territories where a lot of the independents started to rise up from the cracks in the late 80s and early 90s up into the aughts and beyond. And it's uh, really cool, his story, because he's not a guy who is known for a career uh, wrestling. You know, he, he hasn't held championships. He hasn't done this, hasn't done that. But what he has been, he has been the third man in the ring. And, you know, Mike, we've had a few referees on in the past, like James Beard. I've interviewed uh, Danny Davis, uh, someone I bet our guest uh, today has uh, got some stories about, and Jimmy Corderas. So why not add uh, this gentleman to our list? Because he's got a great book out called Ringman, My 32 Years in the Surreal World of Professional Wrestling. It is a very great read, and it's so nice to have him on, to uh, taking some time out of his schedule to welcome the referee's referee, David Dwinell. Well, good morning, Glenn and Mike, and thanks so much for having me on Rasslin' Memories then and now. It's a real pleasure to be talking to you guys and to be on your show. Yeah, it's a real great pleasure that you, you know, again, like I said, yeah, to have you on. And uh, yeah, you you uh, actually sent me a message. And uh, before that, I really had uh, no idea who you were. I mean, I'm going to be honest, but I really didn't know anything about your book or anything. And you sent me a, a nice uh, a message in Facebook Messenger. And I was very uh, interested because you really had a, a life in the ring uh, up there and out there in the East Coast. Uh, you've worked for, um, you know, some many, many, many different individuals 
independent promotions. You work for the WWF. You've done some Crockett. You've done various things in, in that career in the ring. So once I saw just a little tease of that, I was like, of course I'd love to have you on the program. And you were so kind to send me and my co-host copies of your book to read here. And like I said, it's it's it's, it's cool. And I can't wait to uh, just to dig in and uh, for you to tell some stories. Well, shoot away. I'm more than happy to share whatever I have um, that you might be interested in or your, or your um, followers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm going to get in first of all, just uh, what made you decide, you know, to say, hey, I'm going to put together this book. I want to share my stories of, of my time working uh, in the world of professional wrestling as a referee. Some of these places, you know, you've been in Madison Square Garden, you've worked the WWF circuit, but you've also worked the independent. So you, you've been to, to, to little halls and you've been to arenas. You've been to every little uh, nook and cranny, county fairs, wherever. So you, you, you've been kind of like that old song. I've been everywhere, man, in your time. And and that's what's really cool. And but I just want to know what made you finally decide to put it all together. Well, I think a couple of things. Number one, I was retired and I was looking to keep the mind sharp. Number two, um, a lot of times when I meet with relatives, family, friends, or or people who enjoy wrestling, they always have a lot of questions. What was it like back in the eighties, the nineties? What was it like working with the Sheik? What was it like working with Abby? And I said, if there's that much interest, um, that I perhaps should put a book together. And I had no idea. I, I went on Facebook because I basically wanted to be able to see my grandkids' pictures. And I didn't realize how many wrestling sites, like your fine site, uh, was involved with the classic era of wrestling. And I said, if there's that much interest, perhaps people would be interested in me sharing some of my stories. As you mentioned, I'm not a common household name, but I did stick around for 32 years. I did work with approximately 350 named wrestlers, 45 champions, and I said, you know, I'd like to share this with the wrestling fans. And the other thing, too, is I think um, people today need hope, uh, need to dream a little bit. I jumped as a kid that maybe someday I'd be involved in a wacky world of pro wrestling and uh, wrestled on the lawn with my brother back in the 50s and 20 years later ended up working with them in Madison Square Garden. So sometimes I, I think it's important for younger people today, don't be afraid to dream because sometimes your dreams can come true. Oh, most definitely. And that is what you know is shared in your story in this book, Ringman. And, you know, and also, it's a very good thing for, for people who, who uh, are fans of the bygone era of pro wrestling. And, and your story, uh, you know, as a referee, not only talks about things from that bygone era that are no longer really practiced today, and it really adds it some real tr- true insight because, you know what, people think of the referees, you know, nowadays they're just basically in-house or, you know, on the independents, there's guys that go around. But, you know, back in the day, you know, to be a referee, you really, not unlike getting into the pro wrestling business, it was a really closed door type of operation, but you needed some proper connections because it was a commission, the state athletic commission that would do all of this stuff to get these referees. So it wasn't necessarily the uh, promoter with his in-house guys like we have nowadays. So it was very different. And also you had the element of kayfabe. You were still, when you started, very much in the kayfabe era pro wrestling was. So it was definitely some stuff that we, uh, as fans today or as young fans today, will never really truly get a grip on uh, as far as uh, being in that moment or being, you know, absorbing of that moment. But, you know, hearing about it in these books kind of gives a little bit more of an insight. And your story, I mean, 
like I said, getting into the referee business, I mean, that wasn't too easy for you, but you ended up finding your way, though. And that is an interesting story in and of itself. Again, again, like you, uh, what made you want to read, write the book? What made what what the heck got you into the ref? You know, wanting to be a referee. Uh, and how far does this uh, love of pro wrestling go for? I mean, you talked about you and your brother wrestling, but who were some of the people you really, uh, really grew up enjoying and your heroes? And what made you stick around for pro wrestling? What was it all? Because I mean, once you got in, I mean, like I said, this is uh, not an easy thing to do, but you ended up achieving it and getting in with the athletic commission. But just talk about your wrestling uh, story leading up to that point. Well, when television first came out back in the 1950s, um, we had three channels, and nothing really interested me until I see these two guys beating the crap out of each other in the middle of a ring and had no idea what I was looking at. But I was fascinated by this, and so was my brother. And as I mentioned, we formed a little wrestling league on our lawn, and one of my heroes growing up was uh, Bruno Sammartino. Um, and I remember many of the classics people from that era, and I attended a show at the Worcester Memorial Auditorium, and Bruno appeared, and also, well, let's see who else was on it, Chief Big Heart, people like that, and uh, we had front row seats, and, and I was just totally fascinated with this uh, combination of show business and sport, and of course, as you said, it was kayfabe, and I was convinced it was real because the bumps and bruises on their bodies were the same that were on my brothers and myself when we wrestled for real on the front lawn. I knew I was not going to be ever be a wrestler, uh, uh, participate as, as, as a wrestler, but I kind of was challenged by a friend when we were watching wrestling um, at my house uh, in Westchester and watching it on a Monday night, and I said, gee, the referee's doing kind of a lousy job. My friend said, you think it could do better? I said, I believe I could. He said, well, why don't you? And it was that challenge from a friend that kind of got me going, and I said, you know what, maybe I ought to check it out. Who, who knows? Maybe something will happen. And, um, of course, I called WW. I, I, try, I couldn't find a number. There was no um, Internet in those days, and I called the office at the WWF, and um, I kind of struck out there some guy that made Marlon Brando's voice sound like a choir boy. I said, um, is this the office of the Capitol Wrestling? It was Capitol Wrestling at the time. Who wants to know? I said, well, my name is David. What do you want? I said, well, I'd like to be a referee with your organization. We don't need any. We have enough. I said, could I send your resume? He goes, don't send me any gifts, kid. We don't need any. I said, well, that went pretty well. You know, I, I tried finding their office, and at lunchtime, I was working at the Trade Center at the time. At lunchtime, I went up every day to the Hollander Hotel, Holland Hotel which was listed as their, I didn't realize it was a front. So after two weeks of loitering at lunchtime, the, the doorman came out and said, um, are you a cop, uh, private eye, uh, secret service, or just a nut? And I, I noticed you're here every day, and basically I went away kind of dejected. He said that they're only here one day a month, a couple days a month. So I got, I got rejected, but then I found out, that they had nothing to do with the referees. It was actually through the State Athletic Commission and through some friends I was able to apply and, and obtain a license. So that's kind of like how I got into it. Um, it was really through a challenge of a friend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you ended up taking that challenge, and it led you into and through the, all of these little, uh, you know, little steps. I mean, it was a, definitely a process, and, and and good fortune too uh, to be able to have somebody who who kind of went to bat for you to kind of get the, uh, you over the top and into the into the uh, commission. It's good graces. 
Well, I think one of the things in those days, too, people don't realize is referees um, had other jobs. This, I've, I've never refereed full-time for any one promotion. I've always had a legitimate full-time job. I didn't think I would be probably uh, want to uh, be in a position to referee full-time. I always had a real job during the day. But it, evenings, weekends, summers, uh, I, I had the type of jobs, too, where I could get away even if I wanted to go for a few days with some of the independents on tour throughout New England. And, and it, it, offered, it offered me an opportunity to, to work. But, again, I didn't realize it was through the commission at first. And then once I was licensed in New York, I got licensed in other states throughout New England, Virginia, North Carolina. So I, I pretty much went from Maine to probably North Carolina as far as my wrestling career is concerned uh, outside of a few overseas trips. Now, once you've got this uh, license and now you're in, uh, now what was, uh, did, did you do any some form of, was it a, a form of training? Did they have things people can to help you out in those early days? Was it something you had to study on your own as far as like just finding some of the new, understanding some of the nuances of being a referee, being in, and all it's all about placement and learning your, your where you should be for certain spots. How did that really come to you uh, as far as, you know, getting your education in the ring? Basically, I went in cold. I think this was another interesting aspect of my story in the book. The first time I, I got assigned uh, to do a WWF show, I'll call it WWF because that's what it was at the time, and I got assigned, and it was going to be at the county center in front of 5,000 people with them, and uh, I had never stepped foot in a ring. I had never had any formal training. I had only had the training I, I had was watching it on television, so... When I got the news and in two weeks I'd be appearing with the WWF before 5,000 people, I ran out and rented every VHS tape on wrestling known to mankind. I'd come home from work and for hours just watch the referee. Before I had just watched the wrestlers, now I was paying attention to the referee, where they were standing, what they were doing. And when the time came, I'm driving over to the arena and I'm going, geez, what if they don't like me? Would they throw me out of the ring? What, what if I, I'm not qualified? And I said to myself, you know what? I've got to give it the best shot I can and let things fall where they will. I didn't even know if it was all prescribed or, or all, pre, I'm sorry, all predetermined. So I, I didn't even know which ropes to climb through. I'm walking out to the ring and I'm going, do I go through the top and middle or middle and bottom? So this is just a super education for you getting smartened up here. This is all just like, oh, my God, you're learning this on the go, and you're, you're in front of all of these people. I mean, this is a heck of an auspicious debut, I mean, and you're working for the WWF, and you've got some a great bunch of guys on this undercard, and, and you're just trying to find your way and kind of stay out of the way and, and do your job. And then you got the commission, and you got to mind things as well with the rules as far as other things, too. So you must have had a lot of stuff in your head going in for that first night. I kind of like was, oh, my God, I never really thought this was going to happen. I kind of like hoped it would. And now that it's happening, what did I get myself into? So I'm talking to the older referee, um, Mike Fanasoulis, and he kind of helped me out uh, how to give time because in those days you had to give time to the wrestlers, uh, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 10 minutes. Mike says, you know what, it's getting kind of late. You better go up and talk to Rods. Now, my first match was 21-year-old Eddie Gilbert against Johnny Rods. So I'm walking up the stairs to the locker room, to the heels locker room, and I'm going, what do I talk to Rods about? The weather? How's the weather? How do you like the weather, Johnny? How's the family? Uh, is wrestling real? 
you know, <laughs> I mean, it sounds like I was very naive, but I, I really was. I mean, I, um, I walked in, and, and, and thank God I had Johnny Rods for my first match. Johnny used to break in a lot of the talent for Vince Sr. Uh, Johnny was very respected by Vince Sr., and Johnny would break in talent and tell Vince, um, I think that I think they can handle it. I don't think they can. I think they might be good as a face. I think they'd be okay as a heel. And I walked in the locker room, and, and Johnny could see the expression on my face. He goes, first match, kid? I go, yep. And that's when I knew this heel was not a heel at all. He helped me out so much. He, he, he could see that I had a love for the sport and that I wasn't this guy that was coming in like a state official and I'm, I'm a big shot or something. I, I was very, I'm probably very meek, and uh, he, he, he really told me what to do and how to act and, and, and so forth and, and be the ring general. You're the general in there. You tell us what if you see things going wrong, whether it's the face or the heel, and we're going to get you some heat at the end of the match. You're going to disqualify me. You're going to push me. I'm going to push you. You're going to threaten to... And he really involved me in a match, and it made me feel at home going into the ring. And thank God, if I hadn't had Johnny, maybe I would have never made it out past the uh, first night. <laughs> and, you know, also in your book, you talk about, uh, before you stepped into the ring, of how you had a, a, a bit of a friendship uh, to a degree uh, with another guy who had a wealth of experience behind the scenes and uh, kind of helped run the ship was Arnie Skolan. And can we talk a little bit about your connection with Arnie Skolan? Because, again, he was another one of those guys that was behind the scenes uh, for, for the company and also still was winding down his in-ring career at that time that you were breaking in. Well, Arnie lived about 20 minutes from me in Westchester, and before I ended up uh, appearing in the ring, I used to meet him at a local coffee shop. He'd be having coffee, maybe coming back from the road. He was he was one of the top road agents in those days. And I talked with him about wrestling, and he could see I really enjoyed wrestling, and we would talk, and I became friendly with him. And then when I showed up for my first show, Arnie um, lived in the White Plains, New York area, and him and his wife, um, Betty, were actually the promoters of the show. Um, and Arnie was best, one of Vince Sr.'s best friends, him and Gorilla Monsoon. And uh, he actually, Arnie actually owned stock in, in, in the old WWF. And um, he saw me with my little suitcase. I never brought a gym bag. I always brought a little suitcase. And he saw me with a little suitcase, and he said, Dave, hi, uh, going on vacation? <laughs> I said, no, I'm one of your referees tonight. And the look on his face was like he was a little bit shocked, I think. But um, uh, years later, um, I became a, uh, my, my real job was a tax receiver for one of the largest towns in New York State. And believe it or not, I collected taxes for Arnie, Paul Heyman's parents, and uh, Freddie Blassie. We all lived within 20 minutes of each other. So my connection with Arnie, um, and I've mentioned to many people, I, I think two of, the, two of the people in the business that I have the most respect for is uh, are Arnold Scullin and Johnny Rods. They were old school, but they were great people and just really, really fine people. Always treated me with kindness and respect in and out of the ring. I have a lot of respect for them. So I do go quite a ways back with Arnie. He was the promoter on my first show, and, of course, I worked a number of other shows with him as the road agent. 
Another guy that you mentioned uh, was Classy Freddie Blassie, and it was just only a few weeks ago. I had uh, the second president, I guess, of uh, his fan club, uh, John Arezzi, on the program, sharing some memories of how he got to know Freddie uh, in uh, the late 70s and, and, and the like. And, and it was just some really interesting conversation, uh, you know, that we had, he you know was telling me about Freddie. But your Freddie memories must be uh, pretty good as well, because you, you seem, uh, when you mentioned him, to have a a sort of respect and a high regard for him, but Freddie was definitely one of those what classic one of a kind characters. Well, he was a character to say the least. Um, one of the first shows I worked, the, the WWF in those days would run small shows, high schools, colleges, small arenas to fill in because they only ran the East Coast. They'd, they'd travel in cars and they'd run the East Coast from Washington D.C. up to Maine. Well, in between the shows, uh, Vince would try to get them other work, smaller shows, because some of the wrestlers had other jobs in those days. They weren't making big money. Lou Albano drove cab in Mount Vernon. used to bring my friend to uh, church on Sunday. And uh, a number of the other guys worked for the New York Post on the loading docks. What happened was I was assigned to this Catholic high school in one of the toughest sections of Brooklyn. And um, somebody I'd always wanted to meet was uh, Freddie Blassie. So he was on the show as the Ayatollah Blassie, with the Iron Sheik. So I immediately, during intermission, went to Freddie and started talking. And for whatever reason, we hit it off really, really good. Freddie and I just, we hit it off. We, we always have gotten along through the years I knew him. We always had fun on shows. He was one of the greatest characters I've ever met. I, I don't know if he was ever off stage. He was always on stage, even if it was just me and him talking. We got in a ring. And as I said, it's one of the toughest sections of Brooklyn, probably about 500 people there, an old Catholic school with a, with a big um, balcony. So Freddie calls me over when he gets in the ring, and he goes, holy S-H-I-T, Dave, um, look at the people in the audience. They're tougher looking and the restless. <laughs> well, I wanted to start laughing, but of course I can't laugh in the ring. And he's saying, um, yeah, he says, we've got, some, we've got some trouble tonight. And then he looks up in the balcony, and there was this man who weighed about 350 pounds, and he was on two seats. Um, Freddie looked up, and we used to get paid according to the number of people at a show, referees and wrestlers. So if you're on a show with 500 people, you got a lesser payday, 5,000. The garden with 16,000, it, it worked its way up. Well, Freddie looks at this guy sitting on two seats, and he stares me straight in the eye and with a straight face says, you better check with Skolan. I want him to go up there and make sure that guy bought two tickets because <laughs> one ticket could put us into the next pay category. <laughs> but he's talking about before the match. In the meantime, he's got the cane held over my head saying, you know, people were probably figuring, I'm going to, you shut your mouth or I'll hit you with the cane. And, um... You know, I threatened to disqualify him, but we're actually talking about people in the audience and people. Up, and, and, and I said, Freddie, the balcony could collapse. And he said, what the hell are we here? We're not sitting under it, <laughs> you know, as long as we get paid. So those are the kind of conversations you would sometimes have in the ring while people actually thought him and I were fighting uh, with each other. But I always found him. I, I, I got to spend some time with him. One day I drove him out to Coney Island. He called me. He couldn't start his car and he was appearing for the uh, for a number of disabled veterans, and we had a blast. So there were a number of times I really enjoyed being with Freddie, but I, I would ask him questions like, 
See, Freddie, I heard um, Gorgeous George, despite his appearance, was really a tough wrestler. And, of course, his answer was he didn't know the damn difference between a toenail and a toehold. So, <laughs> like, nobody was ever... A, Nobody was ever a tougher wrestler than Freddie in Freddie's mind, so, you know, so be it. So we used to have some great conversations. But I, I really liked him a lot, He, he and he loved my mother. Him and my mother got along. My mother hated wrestling. Uh-huh. She kept telling me, how can you appear with those silly fools? Well, one night I took her to her show, and they made her sit ringside, and she got to know Freddie, and um, basically her and Freddie hit it off. And every time I'd see Freddie after that, he'd always ask how my mom was. So he was—he was really, really a nice guy. Mm-hmm. Now, and, and I won't tell the story, but they can look in the book about the day, unless you want me to, the day he came into the tax office and started banging on the counter and threatening the supervisor. You know what? Uh, I think people should wait for the and, and read it in the book because it's a good one, man. But you know, how would you compare Blassie to like uh, the other managers, his contemporaries uh, at that time into that early '80s uh, for the WWF, like Lou uh, Albano and just before he passed on, uh, Grand Wizard Ernie Roth. Did you have much time with those guys? As you you may have uh, you had with with Freddie. What, what were those guys like? I never got to work with the Grand Wizard. I would have loved to because obviously one of the greatest of all times. Lou Albano was in the same category as Freddie, a great manager. Of course, you'd have to listen closely to Lou. He spoke 800 words every 10 seconds. You know, <laughs> hey, brother, how are you, brother? Good to see you, brother. You know, okay, Lou. Yep. The one I really liked um, that I thought was one of the funniest men I've ever run into in the business was Bobby the Brain Heenan. Oh, for sure. Great. I mean, he was just classic. I mean, he, he, he was kind of, him. Gorilla Monsoon and his lordship, Al, uh, Alfred Hayes, did most of the comments. I probably appeared in the garden maybe, I don't know, maybe 15 times or at least. And they did, when there was commentary, most of the times there were, they did uh, the matches. And Bobby would say things like, this referee can't keep control of the match. Uh, I, I, I don't think he'd make a good mall cop. You know? <laughs> I mean, he just... Some great classic lines. Uh, it used to call people ham and eggers, yep. if you remember that. Of course. You I know, mean, with Bobby, I mean, before he went to uh, work for Vince, I mean, I grew up, uh, I started watching wrestling in the early 80s, so I got to like 82, around late, mid to late 82, so I got to see the last couple of years of Bobby Heenan's run up in AW in the American Wrestling Association up here as AWA country, and man, I got to hear about the Ham and Eggers, I got to see the Bobby Heenan family, got to see the chemistry that he had with Nick Bockwinkle, and man, what a character, I mean, I, I, I totally forgot to add him to that list of great managers but bobby was a talker man and he could get heat like nobody else he could get nuclear heat you could watch any of that stuff on youtube wherever he was in the awa even briefly in georgia other territories where he worked where he cut his teeth he was a guy that just knew how to just push the right buttons with people and 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 just did it in an entertaining manner and never really i think wore out his welcome in those early days well, his interviews were of the classic um, mode. There's no question. I, I think him and Blassie and also um, the Grand Wizard had were the three that really had phenomenal interviews, live interviews on TV, and it just just wonderful. Bobby was a really, really one of a kind, and he sorely missed. I mean, I, it was so tragic at the end of his life, um, unfortunately, with the cancer. But 
Uh, God bless him. He he was just a wonder. And, and and him and Monsoon, if you've ever seen any of their broadcasts, they were just they played off of each other so well. You know, calling people humanoids and, <laughs> and brother that that wrestling. that was chemistry, man. That was they were just so good together on the prime. You know, whether it was uh, covering the arena stuff or on primetime wrestling. I'm going to bring Michael McCurdy into the conversation because I know he has plenty of questions for our guest today, David Dunell, whose book Ringman: My 32 Years in the Surreal World of Pro Wrestling has just uh, come out, and it's a really a, a decent page turner, if I do say. Let's bring him in from deep in the heart of Texas, Mike McCurdy. Um, first off, I'd like to say, David, uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the book. I thought it was great. The fact that it's a collection of stories and all that, and just the names you worked with was amazing. Um, there's a few points I want to, I want to ask about though, because there was one match that really stood out for me and I'd like to hear more details about it. And this was the match with the Sheik, Iron Sheik and Nikolai Volkov versus Wyndham and Rotunda when they were the tag team champions. Uh, I'd like to hear a little bit more detail of that story because that just sounded insane, just what I could read on what I read on pages. Well, I don't think, I hate this, I, I don't want to sound uh, too whatever, but I don't think you're going to see heat like that anymore in the ring. Uh, of course, kayfabe was uh, in full swing back then. And what happened is you, you had the county center. It, it, people back in those days, they were blue-collar fans, um, middle-class blue-collar workers, um, beer drinkers, and white-collar closet fans that would never admit to anyone that they were actually fans. Um, and they would show up at the county center once a month, uh, 5,000 strong. Well, Wyndham and Rotundo had recently taken the belt from the Sheik and Volkov, and it, it was a cold December. It was cold winter, not March. I think it was in March, It was, but it was very cold. They had the doors of the... All the doors were open. It was freezing in there. They had all the doors open because people were standing on the steps. People were standing in the street to watch to see if the evil Sheik and Volkov would take back the title. Well, <laughs> I'm sorry, excuse me. Well, what happened was um, I got into the ring, and, and, of course, it was, I think it was the last, one of the last matches and people were really revved up. Okay, so I'm in the ring, and Volkov and the Sheik come in, and they're waving the flags. And all of a sudden, I see size D flashlight batteries, the really big ones, flying by my head. People in the balcony were throwing them at the Sheik and Volkov. I got hit by two or three full canisters of beer, the, the plastic cups in the face, in the chest. The ring was filled with garbage up to my ankles. I looked down, I felt something hit my wrestling boot. I looked down, it was a dart sticking out of my boot. People in the audience were throwing darts at the... Now, Wyndham and Rotunda weren't even in a ring. Uh, and so I kindly asked the Sheik and Volkov if they'd please go to the other side of the ring with their flags because they really didn't want to die in the middle of a wrestling ring. And uh, they had the crowd worked up, and Volkov was singing in the, the Russian National Anthem, and... Uh, the Sheik was telling people, you Americans, I have nothing but disdain for you spitting on in the audience. And I said, this is not good. Well, Wyndham and Rotundo finally made it to the ring, uh, and uh, I, I kind of called a conference, and normally I would never do this, but I called a conference in the middle of the ring, and I said, you know what, I think it's supposed to be a 20-minute match, but I don't think we're going to last that long. And I noticed they were closing the beer, they were closing down the beer, uh, where they were selling beer and the uh, beer, whatever you would call it. No more beer, and, and and I noticed that the five security guards ringside were not able to 
kind of hold the people back. I thought there was going to be a riot and they were really going to, you know, charge the ring. And we went home in about four minutes. <laughs> I said, you're going to end up without a referee because I said, I may have to leave if this gets any worse. I said, you know, I said, this is getting really, really dangerous. So they went home. I remember Volkov, um, Volkov picked up Rotundo for a body slam and Wyndham um, drop kicked him, fell on him and counted to one, two, three. And then I left with the faces and, um, and that was it. But I've never seen in my 32 years a match that developed that much heat during the course of the match. It was just an un- unbelievable match. I mean, it's something that I- I'd never seen again. <laughs> and fortunately, I've-, I've been in some pretty tough places where it's been close, but the heat that those two guys could um, could get in the match was just unbelievable. Well, part of the thing that I, I-, I found interesting about it is you look at, you know, you go to a show now, well, not now because of COVID and everything, but you go to shows now, there's security checkpoints and they're checking your bags and they're scanning everything. You can't even get in with like a removable lens on your camera. And you're talking about D sized batteries being thrown and things like that. And I'm wondering, you know, how are the fans getting in with D sized batteries? But then I had to remind myself, it was a little bit different time back there. Security measures weren't as, you know, extreme, you know, and it seems like, you know, fans could get in with items like that, which to me is, just kind of amazing because who brings D batteries to a match unless you have a purpose of hurling them at somebody in the ring? I'm, I'm sure they weren't checked at the door, for example. And as I mentioned, most of these people were drinking and sm- you know, having copious amounts of beer, smoking. I mean, in those days, you have to remember, you could smoke in an arena. I'd come out from the locker room and go to the ring sometime, and I could hardly see the ring. There was so much smoke in the arena. But basically, in those days, it was just a completely different atmosphere. Um, but I, I don't even think the WWF was prepared for that. Um, and, and again, they probably had five county police officers for security in, in the building. The WWF didn't have their own security, basically. Even they, they had five county, five or six county um, of Westchester police officers there who certainly could not handle or control the crowd. And again, um, Volkov and his sheet could build up the crowd to a boiling point, which they did. It was a different time, a different era, a different place. Very few kids in the audience, as I said, very few kids, mostly um, middle-class, middle-aged, blue-collar workers who, who followed it. And most of the people, 90% of the people in the arena probably, what they thought what they were watching was real and that the, and that the actual Russian and uh, Iranian were trying to hurt the good old American boys, and this is how they played off in those days. This is how the um, this is how they sold tickets. I mean, they sold out every month, once a month. The White Plains County Center was filled with people. I never remember seeing less than standing room only. They had more character. I'd like to talk about one of the uh, participants uh, in this match, and uh, that's a gentleman that I've had experiences with. Uh, in fact, I got to spend a wonderful weekend with this gentleman in uh, in Vegas, and you had some great stories about him, and that's the Iron Sheet, because, you know, what people see on TV sometimes is not necessarily who he was behind the scenes. Sheik is an interesting character, and I'd love to hear, you know, some more stories about, you know, your experiences with the Iron Sheet. Well, I started working with him early on when I started going on 
um, on the road with the original Northeast Championship Wrestling, NCW, not the one today, but the original one run by Tommy Jeanette. The Sheik would be on a lot of those shows. And, uh, again, we hit it off pretty well. He, he, he enjoyed the way I refereed. I, my whole concept in refereeing was I, I tried to make the guys look good. I figured if I'm going to stick around, if I want to stick around in a business, then i got to work with them. My job is to make them look good. Uh, Johnny had taught me well about how to be a ring general because in those days I think the refs had to add a little more to, to the matches to, 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 to keep the kayfabe going. Well, the Iron Sheik was one of my favorite guys, and one of my favorite stories was the Iron Sheik was um, he used to call me Referee Dave, Referee Dave, I, I, Sheik, enjoy working with you, you know that. And I said, yeah, I do, Sheik, and I enjoy working with you. Well, we're going to make you look good tonight. I says, oh, you are? He goes, yes, uh, this is what we do. Um, he was wrestling Slaughter on the Independent, okay? They kept up the, 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 those matches. So the Sheik says, this is what we do. I take off my boot with the hook, uh, Slaughter Ducks. I hit you with the boot, and then I take my blade and give you two or three slices on the forehead. And I said, um, I don't think so. I don't think that's in my contract. I, I said, uh, Referee Dave doesn't bleed in the ring. Uh, blood stays inside him. But but I only want to make Referee Dave look good. I said, I appreciate it, Sheik. I thank you for wanting to make me look good. But I think I'd look a lot better without blood coming down my face. Uh, that was one of my uh, stories that, that that I kind of got a big chuckle out of because he he, he did en- he did enjoy I, I really believe he enjoyed working with me and and again he was a character he could build up heat in a match and certainly if you're working even as a referee you enjoy matches where you're getting a, a much greater reaction out of the crowd um, because he happened to be a character and he happened to play it well but as you probably know he was actually a an assistant coach on one of the U.S. Olympic teams. I don't yeah. know if you knew that. <clears throat> and um, you know, he was he was a fellow who could really wrestle. I mean, he he, he wasn't he wasn't a, he was more of a sportsman or a sh- than he was a showman, I believe. And I, I always enjoyed working in, in his matches. And I, I remember one day we came off the plane, and I, I told a story in a book. He, we came off the plane. Remember that he used to have these clubs. And, and raise them over his head, mm-hmm. he'd have these yes. two big clubs, and he'd work them on TV. Well, he was very proud of that, and he happened to carry them on a plane. So he's deplaning, and he's going down with the clubs, and he leaves them on the ground, and he's looking for his luggage. And it was a very thin man that came over, and of course, myself and the guys had had maybe a libation or two on the plane, so we, we were feeling pretty good. So one of the guys has said, to the sheik, you see that guy over there? It was a thin guy standing next to the clubs. He very thin man, with, with a suit and tie on. And one of the wrestlers said, "Did you know that that man said he could do the clubs longer than you?" And the sheik looked, and he ran over to the guy, and he said, "Do the clubs." And he got, of course, the guy had no idea what he was talking. He said, "Do the clubs." And the guy went, "What do you mean, do the clubs?" He goes, "Do the clubs." And the guy said, "I don't want to go to any clubs." And he started yelling at him, and he was trying to force him to do the clubs. <laughs> he looked back, and we're just all breaking up. And then it's when he realized that um, we had pulled, a, you know, we pulled something on him. But uh, he, he was always a guy that I enjoyed being with, and we, we had fun with. And um, whether you know, at, at dinner, we'd go out for dinner, maybe before or after the show. And um, he, he was always—he just there was a really, 
really fun guy and a friendly guy uh, to be around. And you know, I always I always enjoyed working with him. I never had any problems in in or out of the ring with him. Yeah, I met the Sheik in uh, in Vegas at CAC oh, 2010. I want to say. And just through just kind of circumstances, I ended up assisting the promoter that was there with him for, you know, to help him out. And I ended up kind of by assisting, I bought him, I got, well, I say I bought him beer because if she wanted a beer, he would ask big Mike to go get him a beer. And that meant I had to buy him the beer. But through that entire weekend, I just kind of became the Sheik's assistant and he would he'd just yell, Oh, big Mike, you help Sheik. And I would come over and he would ask me to do, to do something. It was a very interesting weekend. And yeah, he was an interesting character. Um, the story about the clubs entertained me though, because in the oh, early nineties, he did an independent show back home in California where I lived at the time. And, uh, the promoter had an appearance promoted in the newspaper. Sheik was going to be at a local gym and he had the clubs and the Sheik challenged anybody, the local residents to come down and try to challenge him to do the clubs. And that gym was full of just local athletes, just, big guys that wanted to show that they could do it. Nobody could move those clubs like the Sheik. They tried. And the newspapers were there covering it. Local news was there to cover it because everybody wanted to see a local person be able to do the clubs like the Iron Sheik, and not one person could do it. Well, I, 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 I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure of that. He was very, very strong, and he was a, you know, as I said, he, he could wrestle. He could really wrestle. He, he had a background in, 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 in true wrestling, and in the sport itself, and but like I say, always I always got a kick on. First time I met him, um, I, I was walking down a hallway in a, in a Howard Johnson's, and I see this thick smoke coming from under the door, uh, coming down the hallway. Uh, this uh, funny smelling smoke, you might say. So I open the door, and there's a sheik on the bed, smoking, and um, he just has his wrestling shorts on. And he goes, referee, he opens his arms, he goes, referee Dave, come in, have a smoke, relax, enjoy yourself. I said, Sheik, you're in a non-smoking room. He goes, not anymore, brother. <laughs> and I shut the door, and I said, I better shut the door before the, uh, the, before the alarm goes off. In those days, they only had um, smoke detectors in the hallways. I said, before that smoke detector goes off, Sheik, maybe I should close the door. He goes, so you change your mind, you come back late. I said, I, uh, I will do that, goodbye. I closed the door, but that that was my first um, was my first meeting with the sheik. <laughs> uh, a real um, and another person I'd, I'd like to get a story or two about, if I could. And this is uh, someone that you know, watching the NWA, WCW back in the day. I loved this guy because at that point in time, you didn't have a lot of the big men. Uh, you didn't have the, the the six foot eight giants yet, like you do now. And uh, you tell a couple stories about him, and that's Sid Vicious. I thought Sid was, you know, was a great wrestler, and you know, showman in the ring and all that. And I thought he could have done so much more than you know, you know, what he did do. But you know, could you tell a little bit about uh, your experiences with Sid? Absolutely. Um, many of my experiences with Sid came with um, NEW Northeast Wrestling, run by the fine promotion, run by uh, Michael Lombardi. As he used to, as a matter of fact, they did a great match with Sid and King Kong Bundy, um, <laughs> where Sid actually picked up Bundy and twirled him around and caught me in the head and knocked me out of the ring into the second row of uh, chairs. I don't understand, and, and maybe it's me, I, I don't understand a lot of wrestling websites and places 
that I've gone to, they knock Sid as a wrestler. And, and I, I don't know why, because uh, maybe it's just me, but um, Sid would always request me on, on if, if he was on the show, he would normally, uh, with Mike using two reps, he would normally request me because he knew I was kind of old school. And I also enjoyed working with him. And on the, sh- on the matches I did with Sid, they were well-thought-out matches. He didn't just go in the ring and call a few spots and do this and do that. He had them kind of well-thought-out. And he, had, he was one of the bigger guys at the time, and he held a number of different titles. Um, you know, he had the WWF title what, once or twice. He had um, other titles as well. And I always enjoyed working with him because I thought his matches were well thought out. And I can't see how, why some of the podcasts or some of the places um, uh, were knocking his wrestling ability a little bit. I mean, like I said, maybe it's me or maybe I caught him later in his career. But I always enjoyed working with the man. And he always made me an integral part. Uh, this is something I really appreciated. He made me an integral part of the matches. He would always have a couple things in there for me to be involved with. Now, how many wrestlers are really concerned about, on an independent show, utilizing the referee as part of the script? So I have a lot of respect for Sid. I really do. And um, I, I, enjoy, I always enjoyed working with him, and I always speak very highly of him. All right, Glenn, I'm going to pass the mic back over to you for the, the last few questions. Okay, we're going to head down the stretch here on this edition of Wrestling Memories with our guest, David Dwinell. And David, uh, you talked, um, you and Mike just uh, wanted to talk here about uh, Sid Vicious, but I want to talk about another big man who was, when he made his uh, scene of debut, he made quite the splash, uh, not only on independent, on the independent scene, but ended up uh, having a run in the WWF, NWA, so on and so forth, internationally over in Japan. He was a, a guy that came in with a lot of ballyhoo. Uh, in fact, his debut, I can remember uh, seeing the pictures of, was held in the last days of uh, the Studio 54 in the mid-1980s. You happened to have a chance to uh, ref uh, one, uh, some of his matches in those early days. The guy I'm talking about is the man who had flames on his head, Scott Bam Bam Bigelow. And I'd really like to hear uh, you, you share some of your memories uh, of a real, true big man talent. Well, first of all, let me say that Bam Bam uh, was one of the guys I had tremendous respect for in the business. Not that I respect them all, but I worked with Bam Bam Bigelow at a small high school show when he had just turned pro. He studied at, over in New Jersey at the Monster Factory with Larry um, Richard. And um, I'm sitting in a locker room. I'll never forget it. I'm sitting in a locker room, and this big man comes in with flames on his head and tattoos and so forth covering his body. And he walks over to me, and I introduce myself, and he introduced himself. And he said, uh, Ref, I'm a little nervous. I'm going to be appearing for one of the first times in front of a large group of people. Well, there were probably 300 people there, you know. And he, and he said, I'm a little concerned. I'm saying to myself, oh, my God, this is going to be good. A guy this size, I said, what a boring match this is going to turn out to be. So I didn't want to tell him that. So I said, well, I said, Scott, I'll tell you. We all start someplace. Give it your best. We got in a ring, and I'm going, oh, my God. This guy is phenomenal. I've never seen a big man um, do this many great moves on an independent show. And this is one of his first times appearing public. So we got back in the locker room, and he he said, Dave, how do you think I did? And I said, "Um, 
would you do me a favor? And he goes, what? I said, would you remember me when you make it big? And he was laughing, and he goes, come on. I said, no, no. And I said, you got some great moves. I said, you really made the other guy look good. And this was, I think, Bam Bam's, one of his strongest points that people may have overlooked. He always made guys who were not even close to his talent look good. Look what he did with Lawrence Taylor. Oh, you yeah, know, exactly. He could really make you look good. He could sell a match. He he just was uh, uh, just a wonderful, wonderful man. I, I did a lot of fair shows with him after he left the WWF. I worked on the independents a lot with him, and he, we've done, uh, we did a number of fair shows, and he would do it with his friend uh, Doink the Clown, Ray Lacamelli, mm-hmm. and they would do things like switch the finish on me, you know, <laughs> Uh, just, just, just to bust chops a little bit. But him and Ray had some. They loved working with each other on the independent circuit. So I worked with him into WWF on the independents. And uh, something that people don't know that I think they should is that I, you know there's been a lot said about his his fight with drugs and his demons with drugs. But he rescued several a couple kids from a burning house got burns over about 40-50% of his body, and he rescued two or three kids from a burning house. And nobody ever mentions that. But, but that's the kind of guy Scott was. He, he, um, he didn't forget. He never forgot me. When he made it big with the WWF, every time I'd see him, he'd lift me off the ground, give me a big hug, big handshake, and uh, say, Dave, it's always good, always good to see you. So I, I can't say enough about uh, uh, Bam Bam. Just a wonderful wrestler, and I enjoyed him both in and outside the ring. And boy, we're uh, boy, we're getting close to wrapping up this edition of Wrestling Memories, and we've had so much uh, so much to talk about. So many things I've really enjoyed uh, hearing uh, from me uh, today, David. And I have to uh, put out the uh, the invitation, the open door for you to come back in because I feel like we've merely scratched the surface of some of the people you've you've uh, worked with, some of the people you've worked for. I think this story uh, has definitely an open door for us to, to come back and do this again because, like I said, I. I got topics I didn't even we didn't even get to uh, get involved with so that's a good sign my friend of a, a great guest and great interviews today well Glenn and Mike I, I really thank you so very much you know uh, I, I'm not no one ever bought a ticket to see a referee um, I always thought my job was to make the guys look good and I'm, I'm very proud of that and one of the things I'm proud of if I could just mention it um, not trying to brag but a lot of the wrestlers that I'd lost contact with have retouched base with me through Facebook, through the Internet. And uh, one of the things they always say, gee, Dave, we, we, en- we always enjoyed working with you. And you know what? That, that means an awful lot to me because I always enjoyed working with them. And you just don't know. You don't realize at the time when you're doing things if you're affecting people or, or, or they really do enjoy you. And um, I, I feel like even though I'm not a name in a business, I felt I had a story to tell. And... Um, you know, people in the wrestling world seem to to, to enjoy enjoy the book. Um, hopefully, it can get out to a few more people outside the wrestling world. But again, uh, I tried to keep it at a moderate price of fourteen ninety nine for the paperback and five ninety nine for the um, for the e edition, so that people would um, you know fans. I did, I, I wanted to make it affordable for the fans and. Because really, um, the book is dedicated to fans of all generations and all ages. And let's face it, without the fans, which I am one, without the fans, uh, we don't have a world of wrestling. 
Mm-hmm. And another thing about your book too, uh, your approach was you do you definitely have taken the high road. There's nobody getting thrown under any buses. It's all about uh, your memories and recollections of a life in in the pro wrestling business, and it's a, and it's a fascinating read. But you didn't you didn't even consider going that route, which is again, it's very refreshing to have from time to time. And we don't want to have everybody spill their guts and, and name you know name drop and name call. So it's a refreshing thing to have a book where you can read and and not just uh, reach for the tabloid sensationalistic elements. Well, the business was good to me, and um, I enjoyed working with the guys. And if there was anything that was a little bit controversial, I just said, why put it in there? It's supposed to be a fan-based book. And I'd love to come back if you wanted me sometime, and we could discuss a few things like some of the independent, maybe the independents that were running at the time, uh, the infamous heroes of wrestling, of which I... um, had the main event and did not realize it had become a cult following. Mm-hmm. And there's a few other things we might be able to discuss, and I'd love to come back if invited. Absolutely. I think we should uh, book this for the month of May. I think we can get this because, I'm again, I want to strike while the iron's hot because I, I definitely have many questions, again, about the things that you just mentioned. Where can, Again, the fans, you've kept it reasonable. It's a great book. Uh, you can find it uh, pretty much anywhere people usually uh, go, about, uh, go about getting their books, uh, correct, right? Just to refresh and double-check. On Amazon, Barnes and it's uh, the websites. Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Just put in Ringman, uh, Dave Dwinell, uh, and it'll come up. It, it's a, like I say, it's available on a number of sites. And uh, Book Baby, uh, I, I published it out through. It's not they're not really a publishing company, but Book Baby is the one printing it up. And the great thing about going with them was uh, they print on demand, so I'm not. I, I don't have to order 300 books and have them in the closet and beg the relatives to. Keeps the overhead low, basically, with this approach, which is a smart thing in this day and age, especially with just having space. You just don't want to have all of your elements around you and then feel like it's a race against the clock to get rid of those things. So that's definitely a good uh, uh, structure to work for. I mentioned one other thing before we go. Sure. I'd just like to throw a pitch for the fellow who helped me out um, with the book, James Jaworski. I want to throw in a little... Thank you to him because I, I threw a lot of the stories off him. He helped me with the writing of the book, and I really wanted to thank him for that. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't do that, okay? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, it helped you to put this thing together, and we're grateful to have you on the program. For David Dunell and the grizzled vet Mike McCurdy, I'm Glenn Broggett. This has been Rastlin' Memories. <laughs>